your point on spiritual mm. growth and it's important yeah. as an artist. Yeah. How do we start on that path? Um, it's a great question because um, in many ways, the kind of spiritual life is best when it's intensely private. You know, it's your conversation with God, which is your private conversation, you know. And actually, the more you speak about it, you know, as in trying to tell people how this is how I do it or this is how to do it, it's like the kind of the mists uh, start to form around it. In this episode, I speak with Jonathan Fremantle, a distinguished artist whose art is deeply rooted in traditional techniques, yet explores the dynamic relationship between the human form, time, and the natural world. Utilizing unconventional materials like egg tempera and mountain rocks, Jonathan seeks to harmonize humanity with the earth. With a global exhibition portfolio and significant contributions as an educator and curator, he has left a notable mark on the art and fashion worlds. Since returning to Edinburgh in 2019, Jonathan has focused on advancing his studio practice, continuing to push the boundaries of traditional and contemporary art. Welcome, Jonathan. Welcome to Juice List. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Ah, pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Can you tell us where you're speaking from and then a bit about yourself as well? I'm talking from my studio in uh, Scotland, in the um, Scottish borders, so just the border between England and Scotland, about an hour south of Edinburgh. I'm a South African artist. I was born in Cape Town, studied in London, and um, I now live mostly in Edinburgh, but um, maintain a strong connection to South Africa and, and exhibit regularly there. And I've got a show coming up in May, and the studio I'm in currently is a is a seven-month residency where part of the Hugo Burge Foundation, where I have this cottage studio in the deepest rural hills of the Scottish countryside. Um, and I'm here from Monday to Friday completely on my own. So it's a kind of life of a hermit during yeah. the week. And then uh, back to my life, uh, wife and children in the weekends, so it's a strange and interesting time and right in the middle of it. That's very isolating. How do you manage? How do you cope? Oh, I thrive on it. And it, it feeds me in so many ways. I think as an artist, you're accustomed to, uh, to the sort of solitary life and I think in some ways maybe attracted to it. Obviously, the kind of focus that comes from being completely on your own, if you can deal with the kind of silence, I mean, it's something I've always loved, particularly this kind of silence that comes when you're in direct contact with nature. I think the silence of being alone in a city is is much harder to bear because that's, you know, you feel the kind of loneliness, I guess, because you're surrounded by people, but you're, you're alone. So no, I mean, it, it's something I love and cherish. It's, I, I, Obviously, this is a bit more intense because I'm here for the full week. But even just in a normal studio practice, most of the time you're working on your own. It gives you that possibility to work from a kind of inner yeah. um, inner guide rather than being constantly uh, having to deal with kind of external influence. Uh, yeah. Okay. Jonathan, what's your story? How did you get here to this point? 
Yeah, so I, I grew up in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, I'm 45 now, so uh, I finished school in 96. It was a, quite a mega time in South Africa, this kind of thrilling new democracy being born. Um, and uh, and yet I felt for sure that I needed to leave Cape Town. <laughs> I guess anybody, you know, if you've got a, a sort of yearning to grow and develop, you, you feel like you need to leave and find your fortune somewhere else. My father had studied at Oxford. Um, he's also an artist. So I guess it was in my DNA to try and find my way to London to study, and that's what I did. And uh, spent seven years on a really intense, well, it was a four-year apprenticeship with some extra years attached, working with a uh, group of incredible artists, men and women, all quite old and, and wise. We were introduced to traditional painting, sculpture, geometry, amazing, intense training, which had meditation at, at its core. And we were taken to Greece and to Chartres Cathedral and to Florence. And, and we learned while we were learning these technical skills, we were also learning the philosophy and, and sort of mysticism behind these Renaissance movements. Um, so that was the kind of grounding. That's the training that I began my life with. And it took me a few years to find my own language. <laughs> Um, you know, when you learn from the, the, the ancient books, you, you, you kind of assimilate the knowledge and then you have to find your way into speaking it authentically for yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that journey took some time. And um, I think about five or six years ago, it really uh, landed in a much deeper way, um, where possibly a bit before that. But um the journey that I've been on more recently is is very much connected to where I was, where I began, not just in terms of Africa and growing up uh, in this amazing place, but also where I was trained and, and uh, the, the kind of connection to the ancients. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, now now I'm I'm living in Scotland, but but like I said, still very much connected and uh, exhibiting. I go at least once or twice a year back back home and I show once a year, probably in South Africa, uh, I still very much see my soul as connected to that place. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. I mean, the, the journey of the artist is probably no no different to everyone's kind of journey, whether it's business or sport or whatever it is that you choose. There's a point where your kind of um, learned experience, stuff you've learned and your life experience, you know, the kind of the knowledge or wisdom that comes through your own journey as a, as a human, you know, overcoming things and the kind of uh, joys and tragedies of your of any ordinary life, you know, and how those the kind of wisdom that comes from that connects with what you've learnt, you know, this trade or whatever it is. And, and in my case, it's painting, sculpture now as well. Um, Instead of it sounding like you're speaking someone else's language or a learned language, it starts to feel like you're speaking your own. You know, and, and from the outside, it may not be an obvious, like, moment. You know, yeah. it, it may may not be obvious to, to the kind of, apart from to those who are really kind of observing your journey from the beginning. And I think in that case, it is pretty obvious. But 
But yes, it, it felt more like a moment where all the threads came together and uh, instead of working towards something, I felt like I was working from something, if that makes sense. Um, it, it does. Hmm. It does. But I, I want details on how, as an artist, you're able to find the language of what your form is, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I can just speak about my own my own journey towards yeah. that mm-hmm. moment and, and maybe you can sort of uh, reverse engineer it and yeah. kind of work out. So, you know, my training was was very traditional, very uh, very much the opposite of what most kind of art school training is like uh, these days. There was a lot of discipline and uh, we, we, were, we began the day uh, early in the morning and um, we were taught, you know, kind of traditional methods of painting and sculpture, and and uh, we were taught that, you know, yeah, drawing is fundamental, and um, we did a lot of drawing. I mean, you know, a year's worth of drawing uh, sculptures in the National Museum uh, in London. It's like if you can imagine the the old style of master and apprentice, you know, whether it's yeah. like a Japanese. Zen master and his pupil, or it's it's the old style of training where you're you're apprenticed and you start at the bottom. I mean, before we were even allowed to paint, we learned how to uh, we, we were taught how to draw, and then how to hold a brush and you know, how to clean a brush, and and so my training was very methodical, you know, and and, and yet at the same time, being young, you're constantly pushing against that, you know, like I. As much as you're learning a skill, you're also you're also want to find your own voice. So there's that counteractive balance going on. But yeah, I, I finished that training with a with a, an intensely uh, a sort of deep knowledge of the technique of painting and sculpture in a traditional sense, and a really strong connection to the alchemy of material, like what paintings and sculptures are. What are they made of? You know, how are they constructed? What are the materials, yeah. uh, the kind of physical, alchemical connection to material? And uh, that that was probably the first thing that I began to use on my own journey towards self-expression, this, this idea of alchemy. And uh, one of the things growing up as a kid in Cape Town, everyone grows up in the shadow of the mountain and... Uh, People who live in the shadows of mountain will will understand the significance of a mountain in your life. You know how a mountain becomes the kind of it's like a cathedral. You know, it's, even if your your experience is only just to live underneath it. I was lucky that my father took us into the mountains regularly, and we'd go sleep there. And, and uh, so, yeah, for me, mountains were were a kind of mystical, magical place. At a certain point. I was tired of regurgitating these traditional techniques, even though I had commissions and, you know, and people wanted me to paint portraits and so on. But I didn't really know what the next language looked like. I didn't know what my language looked like. I knew I knew a lot of artists that I liked, you know, and I knew I knew a kind of I had a philosophical um a kind of uh framework that I used to, that I used to engage the world. And I had this deep connection with nature and specifically mountains, uh, but that's kind of all I had. And so I, I went on a, a, a kind of like mythical quest into the Scottish Highlands to go and find my subject, you know, 
and in my mind I was I was looking for the perfect mountain. But it felt a little bit like those, you know, we read about these mythic quests like search for the golden fleece or or whatever, you know, yeah. where 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 the kind of hero in the story is is sent journey. forth to go and, yeah. on a journey to find this mythical uh beast or this mythical answer or the sacred object or whatever it is, um, the Holy Grail, whatever you want to call it. And for me, it appeared in the form of a, of a perfect mountain. And uh, on this journey, uh, and the Scottish Highlands are, are epic. I mean, it's, they're very brooding, very intense mountains, uh, not to be messed with. Uh, and you get that feeling like you do with all when when nature is extreme, like it's the Niagara Falls or it's the or or, uh, or uh, the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa or or you know any anywhere where where nature is like massive waves or you you have this dual feeling of awe and terror, you know? mm-hmm. um, and and that 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 incredible feeling of being a small thing in 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 relation to a massive thing, you yeah. know your your being is is humbled by the presence of this vastness, and it's not just a benign vastness. It's a it's a vastness that can envelop you and destroy you. Um, and uh, on this journey, I, I actually happened to find the perfect mountain, which is hilariously perfect. You know, it's this perfect triangle, and uh, it's quite a famous mountain. In fact, it's the one where all the tour buses stop when they're coming to do a tour of the Highlands. And actually, initially, I thought, nah, it can't be that. That's too obvious. You know, it's like yeah. the Mona Lisa, you know, it's hiding in plain sight. But when I got back to the studio, I thought, fuck it, you know, there is the perfect mountain and I need to somehow engage with this thing. And uh, so I started making drawings and, and so on. And it just all felt so futile. Like I'm this little small human doing a little small painting, trying to capture something which is immense you know no matter how big i make the painting it's always going to be pithy and and slightly pathetic in relation to the mountain you know and and and, and anyway i'm sitting in my studio working from a drawing and, and a photograph you know how how ludicrous is that so i went back to this idea of material and alchemy you know what what is alchemy you know alchemy is the old the ancient art of of converting a sort of ordinary substance into gold, but really it's a metaphor for spiritual growth. You know, we are the the sort of earth beginnings of a divine being, if you like, and uh, through this mystical process, um, which is actually attention, you know, paying attention, being present, we, and engaging in the world with that presence, we become transformed, you know. So that, that's the alchemy. But I thought, how can I con? How can I use this in my pursuit of painting this mountain? You know, how do I, how do I actually do this? You know, it's easy to say it. So I just started with the most obvious, which was to go back to the mountain and get climb it and get the rocks from the summit of the mountain, grind them up, make paint of the mountain and then use that paint to paint the mountain. <laughs> so it's just like the beginning of this idea of you can engage more deeply with the subject, if you like, yeah. um, by being physically involved in it. And, and actually through that process, um, 
all sorts of kind of missing links started joining for me. And uh, I think that was the beginning. You know, that's when I realized that I was on, on I guess, in a way, my, my, my desire to be deeply immersed in nature, uh, my um, yearning for a kind of spiritual growth, and the fact that all I wanted to do was paint, you know, or sculpt or be in the studio, they all came together. Like, here, here's how you do that. You know, you, you, here's a way to engage physically, you know, in nature and, and be involved in it and, and kind of the question mark of magic, you know, like something magical happens when you do that. Um, and, and in a way, it's a kind of act of reverence because you know, you're doing this hard thing like climbing a mountain and and it's developed beyond the initial experience but that that was the spark you know that's the beginning of where that grew and, and ever since then it's it's found its way into my practice in, in in just thrilling and exciting new ways you know yeah how do you identify that mountain um like from your yeah. experience seeing that how do you know this is like mm. the perfect one Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, there's a kind of a point at which your your kind of learned experience and your knowledge can take you, and uh, that's not enough. Um, and beyond that, there's this this uh, this instinct. It's like we have a feeling, you know, and and we can't quite identify what it is that we're looking for, but it's pulling us. It's like a kind of uh, like a hum, you know, or like a magnet, and it's pulling us, and and we have it's vibration. It's a vibration, yeah. That is that is it, and we we can tune in, but as as soon as we try and give it a name, like that's what it is, what we're doing is we we're we're superimposing an image or a or a or a, a previous vibration. We're saying, okay, that's what it is. I know what it is, but the beauty of it is you don't know it. You, you feel it. In fact, you do know it because it's within you and it's vibrating on a frequency which is essential to your being. So really you're recognizing yourself, you know, but but our, our idea of ourself is, is smaller. So we have to grow into that experience, I guess. Um, but the, 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 the miracle is that when we push ourselves beyond our own boundaries through various things like just, just, changing our patterns or, or going out into the world to look. It's like you sort of have to appear to be going on a quest. <laughs> yeah. But truly, the thing that you're looking for, you already have, but you just don't recognize it yet. So I guess that's what it is. You know, it's like you. when I saw that mountain, it, it's mysterious because I'd seen many mm-hmm. um, amazing mountains. And, and this one I saw right at the end of the trip. And it was almost like... Hang on, what? I can't believe that, that's too obvious. And I went. It, it took me to the whole drive home. It was like a two-week journey, and the whole week dr- drive home, I was almost rejecting it. Like, no, 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 it can't be. And uh, you know, only a few days later, during reflection in the studio, you realize, you know, you it was there. It was kind of right in front of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, your question, I don't think that answers your question properly, but I think maybe it's something of an answer. Um, but it's definitely in the realm of instinct. And, yeah. and someone asked me recently, uh, how do you know when a painting's finished? And 
And the truth is that for a painting to be good, you have to imagine the, that, that the, the point at which a painting is finished is the edge of a cliff. And okay. over the cliff is the painting's ruined. And before the edge of the cliff, the painting isn't finished. Wow. In order for it to be a good painting, you have to run to the edge of the cliff. Because if you go slowly, it's a boring painting. And you've got to run and run and run. And, and it's the only thing that tells you that it's finished or to, to not go off the edge is instinct. Yeah. It's just, you know, stop. And, uh, of course, you go off the edge many times. And the more times you go over the edge, the more you learn to trust your instinct. It's like your body has this, the body has all this intelligence in it. You know, it knows. It it's knows, like a yeah. physical feeling. It knows. And you just begin to learn how to trust it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this also reminds me, mm. I was speaking with a friend and we were talking about knowledge versus understanding. And I was saying that, you can know a thing, but do you truly yeah. understand? And I feel like understanding is another form of knowledge. Yeah. And, and that requires experience. Yes, absolutely. And I think also understanding in, in the sort of truest sense is access to a kind of cosmic knowledge. It's the same way that an idea, which appears to be your idea, is really just something that you've been awake enough to pluck out of the out of the kind of great consciousness mm -hmm. and in the same way that kind of wisdom i'd like the word wisdom because it, you're drawing from not just your own lived experience but you're also in a sense drawing from all of the um yeah unwritten hidden or kind of invisible signals that are available to you yeah. in that moment and uh if your brain got involved it, it would try and kind of put it in a box and, and, and it's literally like you'd be using one toe on your foot you know, yeah. and not your whole body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. This is making my mind race, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to your point on spiritual mm. growth and its importance yeah. as an artist. Yeah. How do we start on that path? Um, it's a great question because um, in many ways, the kind of spiritual life is best when it's intensely private. You know, it's your conversation with God, which is your private conversation, you know. And actually, the more you speak about it, you know, as in trying to tell people how this is how I do it or this is how to do it, it's like the kind of the mists uh, start to form around it, you know. You, and um, so I think we all, in some way, one way or another, are born into a tradition of some kind. You know, we have some access to a kind of uh, inherited spiritual language, you know, whether, whether we come from a kind of Zen Buddhist background or it's Christian or it's uh, or it's agnostic with a connection to nature, you know, or or um, it's purely philosophical. Um, I think the the root in is 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 as many humans as, as they are on the planet. There are different ways into this spiritual life, but um, but at its kind of core, uh, it's a yearning for oneness. And I do believe as 
babies, you know, until the age of whatever, it's about seven. You know, we know that age where the world's like magical and we don't think of it as being contained or sort of uh, with limits. <laughs> and then we start to learn those limits and then we, we become whatever, South African, you know, or, or, or all these labels that we put on ourselves. I mean, Picasso spoke about the idea of the point of an artist is to trying to paint like a child. And in a way, you are a child and then you forget about being a child. And, and the kind of journey isn't outwards. The spiritual journey isn't out into a sort of linear forward progress. It's yeah. actually the other way. It's, it's sort of picking your way back into this oneness, this feeling where, the, where it's universal. And I do think it's pretty fundamental. It's fundamental to me. You know, it, it drives everything I do is, is uh, uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm doing things and then I'm looking at the effect that they had on my body, on the, the effect that they had on the, the work itself, you know, like whether I've, if I meditate in the morning, I, I practice meditation and uh, sometimes I practice prayer as well, you know, and I think the two are the same thing but have different kind of nuances um, and the effect that that has. It's like an experiment, you know, what, what does that do to the work and how does that affect it? I guess as an artist, you hope that your work speaks for itself, you know, and that you don't have to, I think it's dangerous when you start surrounding it with words and concepts. Um, but it's very important to me, this sort of spiritual life is, I don't think there's a difference between my the spiritual life and life, you know, it, my whole life is a kind of spiritual practice, if you like. Mm. Um, um, and sometimes you get, you know, I feel like, yeah, I'm taking it all too seriously. And then this other kind of energy comes in, which is like this child energy, which is to just play. You know? um, and uh, and that's super useful. In fact, that's probably the most useful, you know. Um, and I think maybe one final kind of area to look at is that I do think the life of an artist is very well suited to a kind of spiritual practice because... Uh, you immediately see evidence of your mental and physical uh, and emotional uh, state in the work you've made. It's not that you can't in all other areas. I mean, I guess pretty obvious when for sportsmen, all areas like endurance sport or climbing mountains or, or you know, and I'm sure it's visible in everything you do, but I do think with, with, with making objects, art, art objects, you, you have this kind of litmus test straight away. You know you know where you are. You can kind of gauge it. So it's a conversation between the kind of physical realm and the and the subtle realm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that helps. That, that felt does. a bit confused. No, 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 it does. It does. It does. It does. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you, Jonathan. Mm. There are a lot of interesting tangents I want to point out, but I also don't want us to go too deep. To mm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> to lose the focus of our chat. But yeah. um, I want to go back to your practice, but you said something about, mm. I was taking some notes here, you said something about the life of an artist is suited to a spiritual practice. Yeah. And I just wanted you to share more on that. What does it look like for you? What does your spiritual yeah. practice look like? Well, I mean, actually, it's maybe more helpful just to sort of go my ideal day. <laughs> yes. Like every, every day uh, has an ideal, you know, and obviously there's, 
chaos comes into, thank God, actually, that chaos intervenes because otherwise we'd, we'd just live the same loop. But, but I, I can identify days that have really worked for me and, and they generally have the same pattern. And uh, that might be helpful to share. But uh, so I, I'm not a natural early morning person. Um, I, I tend to work into the night if I can. Um, but I find that when I break that, pattern and wake up earlier, it's a good day. If I, uh, I'll then connect with nature, go for a walk, come back, you know, have a shower, have a, have a coffee, um, and then meditate for 20 minutes. And uh, I have a, a mantra, which I, I use to meditate with, but sometimes the meditation is just sitting in contemplation. You know, you just um, almost like you're uh, Dissolving the line between your own perceived body and the the experience of nature, so this this sort of container that you carry, you know, like it's like a coat you put it on. Jonathan Fremantle is going to have a day, you know, <laughs> just to sort of lose that that little bit, you know. And then I find the the sort of two areas of my of of what I do in the studio. The one is kind of the known, you know, things you need to do, like preparing surfaces, making frames, applying layers of paint to something that you've already decided needs that layer of paint. You know, those are the known. Imagine you're in a room with a wild animal. And best way to deal with this wild animal is to be super calm. You know, almost like I didn't even notice that animal there. <laughs> and, and if you give him too much attention, he's definitely going to eat you. You know, that's, there's no doubt. So you walk about the day calmly, you know, you prepare well. This this animal, let's call it a tiger, you know, is is roaming around the studio. And the tiger is the is the 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 other side of the creative process, which is like annihilation, where you, you have to just dive in and get fucked up by the process, you know. And you don't know what's gonna happen, whether it'll be good or bad, and you know that you have to go over your own sort of cliff of knowledge. <laughs> In fact, I heard from the great writer, he, uh, Joseph Campbell, he writes about the many mythologies in the, in the world and how there's so many overlaps, actually. And he speaks about the Sumerian, uh, the great Sumerian tribe who used to keep uh, wild lions as pets, but they wouldn't tame them. So they would just live amongst them. And the idea was that uh, if they ever lost their kind of level of consciousness, you know, their, their focus... Yeah. The lion would know, and it would it would eat them. Wow! So they had, so having the lion there was a way to keep them on this higher plane of alertness, of being grounded, um, being present. Yeah, grounded and present, and like you know, knowing that that living. I mean, in another tradition, you might call it living in the constant present knowledge of death. You know that you you're aware that this moment of life could also end in any second. Um. So I guess a lot of the practices that I do are are more I do, as in like Jonathan Fremantle, are setting up the stage, you know, carefully preparing. It's quite methodical, you know, the meditation, the preparing the materials, the kind of making the frames, preparing surfaces, doing the kind of groundworks for 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 making a, a painting or sculpture. But the, the kind of other element is this inviting the lion or the tiger or whatever you want to call it into into your space. And and uh and you kind of in that space it acts through you. You know, you're not the doer. You're just 
you just made the room, you know, and you're standing there and you're, you're uh, observing it in a sense. Um, and, and when it really works, I guess, to kind of finish the metaphor, you get eaten by the line, <laughs> um, you know, in the best sense, you know, yeah. you, you just, you, your own kind of ego is destroyed and, and the work is a better version. It, it's a kind of comes through you in a sense. And uh, those days, and they, they, you know, one in every five is a day like that. Um, those days, you, you know, you go to bed and you know something's happened. And the next morning, you know, when you wake up, hopefully earlier, <laughs> and you go for the walk and then I'll open the studio door and like peek in because you're excited. You don't know what you've done. I mean, even though you, you were sort of physically present making it, there's a part of you that you don't know whether it's where it came from. So you don't even know what it is. And, and it's always so exciting to see those works because they teach you, a, they're surprising and kind of new. They come from somewhere else, so they're new, yeah. you know. You don't know them yet. They arrive and it's a new thing. Um, and on a kind of ordinary level, it's super exciting. And and on a kind of a kind of bigger level, it's it's uh it gives you this feeling of this is why I do what I do. You know, it's like this is the meaning behind it, is to be able to uh, kind of allow for these bigger things to to come through you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, to kind of finish the question uh, or to add to the question about the spiritual life, I think in many ways the kind of spiritual practice is just to prepare you to be available for that moment. It's That's all, you know. It's just, just so that you're ready when the lions or the tiger or whatever it is is ready to be its, its kind of most exciting self. Really, all you can do is just work on yourself and your environment and, and so that you're uh that you're sort of prepared for that you know yeah um <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> this is so interesting jonathan uh, I, I didn't expect this now let's talk about some tangible things yeah from your understanding of what materials are composed of mm. uh, and you, your understanding yeah. of transforming something into gold what, yeah 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 what, what is a painting Recently, I've been I've been carving in wood actually, um, and it's the same thing. You know, you start with a found. I, I particularly find it exciting to go and uh, instead of going to an art shop to buy materials, you know, in, in a tube and squeezing it out. And I find that interface, you know, with materials a bit. Even though I obviously go and I obviously buy paints and brushes, um, but but if I can go and into nature and find the materials myself and process them myself and then make the the um whether it's paint or it's that the sculptures are made from a tree that blew over in a storm three years ago it's just been lying there waiting i always feel like the 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 kind of beginning of the work has got more um uh kind of magic to it you know the materials already I've had a contact with it since I picked up that rock on that mountain and I brought it back to my studio, <laughs> smashed it up, you know, and, and mixed it with oil. And I'm sure it's the same if, if you're a chef, you know, and you grow your own vegetables, you know, and, you, and you're making the meal from animals that are in the field next to you and, and uh, from the vegetables from your garden. And um, there's a kind of sort of sacredness to it, you know, but, but, but beyond that, or, or maybe more importantly, you're just in touch, like you're physically in touch with it. Um, and actually, in some ways, like, it's almost about 
how do I how do I not ruin this? You know, the material is so beautiful in its own right. Like all you're trying to do as an artist is to to kind of not uh, destroy that kind of magic of it. Because you could, I guess, just like put the rock in a gallery and say that's that's it, it's done. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting is what happens when you as the artist starts to to process it, you know, like what happens through you, you know, your own body and your own vessel. Um, and uh, I do think alchemy is quite a useful uh, metaphor because um, on the one hand it's like processing a raw material and making something beautiful out of it or making something, maybe it's like making something about human suffering, you know. But in the process of kind of converting this rock into paint and then into a surface and something of your own kind of suffering or your own experience comes through. And then there are all these other things like the 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 the, the sort of sensory experience, like when you the sound of smashing a rock up, you know, and incredible. That kind of I'm sure that gets into the work. And then the smell when you're grinding it and mixing it, and you start to learn. Uh, because you have control over, uh, instead of buying it in a tube where it's already ground up by a machine and it's so smooth, you know, um, you can kind of control how much grit you want in the paint. You know, maybe you don't want it papers thin, as, as, like fine smooth. Yeah. Maybe you want some of the kind of, or maybe you just, I mean, I did a painting the other day, uh, just the end of last year, where I, I climbed a mountain with um, with this big, sort of two meter, not quite two meter canvas and, and the stretches all sort of rolled up uh, and my whole sort of grinding studio and climbed the Scottish mountain uh, in pretty, pretty awful weather actually. <laughs> and then, um, and then I, the idea was I was going to make the painting on the top of the mountain uh, of the paint, you know, yeah. of the rocks that I found there. And, uh, but it was granite. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of really like big pieces of things because yeah. I mean I'm hand grinding and yeah. granite's you know, like super tough and it doesn't have color. So I guess sometimes you know sometimes the best things happen out of sort of failure. Like I couldn't grind it because it just it was zero degrees. It was raining. And and I probably would have gone mad if I had to spend four hours grinding pigment. So I stopped because I was just too tired and cold to carry on. And that's the, the size of the pigment, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess it's like being in touch with material in that way invites chance and and uh, and deepens your con connection with the material. Um, same with the wood, you know. Uh, every piece of wood's different, so you kind of instead of getting square sections of timber from the wood merchant, um, working with a tree, you know, it's, it's, it's got an organic form within it already. And um, like this guy, um, you know, I was carving this the other day and it, it already has this kind of organic form. Yeah. Uh, that really excites me, you know, and... and um, I love the challenge of it, you know. You know, when, when you sort of see your own life ahead of you, like what do you want to be doing more of and what do you want to be doing less of? You know, there's certain things I don't, I just don't enjoy doing. Like I don't like sending emails, <laughs> for example. But I love, I love 
playing with material, you know, and touching and, and grinding and carving and um, and uh, maybe just on a very fundamental level, like the ability to do more of the thing that I love is, is, is maybe what keeps me exploring into this area of material. Yeah. Based on your experience with wood as well, does, yeah. does, does wood have memory? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Huh. I mean, I think it's in this area again of how do you know if it's the perfect mountain, you know, yeah. like how do you know? The answer is is yes, of course, absolutely. You use the word vibration, which I think is such a perfect word. Um, like stone is quite clearly vibrating on a much slower frequency. You can feel mm-hmm. it. It's, it has a, it because it's evolving so slowly, you know, like I'm holding a rock, I was holding a rock the other day, which is, um, you know, like a billion years old. Um, and it's still bound in a sense by time because it, it was formed through a process. It became its form, but it's slowly changing in its form. It's just that it's, it's kind of wave frequency is really slow. And uh, wood has a, different woods have different frequencies for sure. I mean, the, the the cedar that I've been carving is um is only uh it's it's only about sixty years old, but I I've I've had some wood which is like two three hundred years old and it definitely has a different feeling. You can also feel the way it's the the way it's been manipulated by its environment. You know, yeah. Uh, that's I think it's the same as a human. You know, you can see a human's the effect of the environment on a human, you know, whether it's through their sort of, um, uh, through their life story or just they've had a lot of sun. But I mean, you know, like a tree, we get shaped by the environment and you can definitely get a reading on that. And um, there's a point where I'm I'm definitely responding to the wood in that way. I'm like, what's in here? But there's also, there's a point where I'm resisting it. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm carving you, you know? um, but the winner in that is always the wood. You know, you 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 may you may think you're kind of making an impression, but but uh, generally the um, the material will sort of tell its story through you. You know, that's my experience. Yeah. Mm. Plus, plus with wood, I'm I'm quite new to this language, so. It's exciting, and and yet I still have that feeling of like I don't know what's going to happen every time I get the chainsaw out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and I know you, you use different materials, but what's the central theme around your work? What's the yeah. message? Ah, um, I think I, I don't think I I have a kind of message as as much as it's a it's like a. a I'm sharing my deep love and uh, kind of mystical uh, relationship with um, the the physical planet, you know, and and I also feel like in this time of peril, you know, where we're losing that contact with the the kind of divine nature, as in that kind of wonderful magical experience that happens when you dissolve into nature, when you have that relationship, physical relationship with nature. Um, so I, I really would rather say that that my purpose as an artist or the way I see myself is to 
go deep into that experience and share it, you know, and and hopefully in some way there's the, the work has has some traces of that that my own experience and my own kind of uh, pull into that realm, you know. I just feel like I'm only just beginning, you know. It's it's the kind of wonderful thing of of evolving as an artist. You 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 constantly changing, even though there's there's a central. Yeah. Um, theme if i can i remember making work when i was seven years old uh doing like a drawing of a goose flying over a field you know and i remember thinking uh i want to do this for the rest of my life Uh, it's something to do with the act of drawing but it's also about storytelling you know and, and and encouraging um contact with the the uh the magic of nature yeah yeah i mean when you were mm. speaking i was also going back to your point on yeah. who is an artist um and like what qualifies you to be an artist mm. Mm. i think i think we're all artists i mean i think and i don't mean i'm not saying that flippantly i do genuinely believe that the, the word artist is is a word that's become a kind of profession you know which which i think is misleading you know, we we're all um, in the same way as we're all uh, children. You know, uh, I guess. You know, I think I think the urge to be creative is the same urge that a child has when it wants to um, express itself, whether it's like dancing or drawing on the wall of your parents' home. You know, um, kind of the human urge to to make contact with uh, the world that it's, it surrounds itself with. And the the kind of unknown behind the veil, you know, what what's behind that? Um, the kind of mystery, you know, and, and art is a language, you know, which we we I think if we're all to live fully, we sh- we should all live with some kind of um, space for that creative instinct within us, you know. Sometimes I think you know it it would be better if you know because art objects become these kind of objects of luxury right you know if you've got a painting it's a sort of luxury item or a sculpture or a you know or or a really expensive dress you know um we can lose the kind of central point of art by getting obsessed with the kind of object um but maybe that's another conversation (laughs) yeah what makes one a great artist yeah well I mean, if I look at the artists that I define as great, um, they they speak a a kind of they're able to to very honestly, very beautifully, elegantly express their own particular vision. But they're not trying to do that. They're not trying to make you know invent a style like Van Gogh wasn't trying to paint like Van Gogh. You know. The result of of their own kind of incredible uh, genius is that they create a kind of universal language. I was at a show recently in Paris of uh, Rothko's paintings, big show, just so many people experiencing this painter whose work is super minimal and uh, there's not much to grab onto in terms of like the figurative element. but the experience of being in a room with all these people watching, experiencing these artworks was really profound. And I think everyone was having a singular experience. You know, you, you felt like there was this aura of kind of reverence and uh, it was a very quiet, meditative experience. Crazy to to think that hundreds and hundreds of people have come from around the world 
and there is somehow experiencing the same thing, you know, and there, there is a, a great work of art has the power to do that. You know, it's almost leaps out of its own um, language and becomes universal. Um, mm. You know, I had, I had the same experience when I first saw Michelangelo's Pieta in uh, St. Peter's in, in Rome. Yeah. It's a sculpture of, of uh, the Virgin Mary holding the dead body of Christ. Um, and it's in white marble. And it's in St. Peter's, which is this church, like the biggest Catholic church on the planet, uh, which is full of marble. It's almost, it's actually over the top. And if that was the symbol of kind of high Christianity, it'd be like, I'm not sure I like that. It's it's pretty OTT, but it's beautiful. You know, it's it's powerful and it's big and so on. But but um, it doesn't have that feeling of genius about it. It's it feels like uh, it's shouting too loudly. So you walk up the steps and you go in, and there's all this marble, green marble, red marble, and then you look to the right, and there's this sculpture. It's all white, almost pure like alabaster, and uh, it's the figure of Virgin Mary holding this limp soft, small body of Christ on her lap. And uh, I burst into tears, but not, you know, like gentle sort of tear jump down yeah. the cheek, like like convulsing, like floods of tears. And um, my sons were with me and they, you know, they were like, wow, dad's having an experience. We walked up to the thing and um, it was like the sculpture was a portal. It had opened up uh, into just another dimension. <laughs> and I could, I looked around and there were other people having the same experience, you know, and, and I'd been warned by friends, you know, oh, when you go to St. Peter's and you see the Pieta, you're going to cry. And I was like, oh, no, don't tell me that. I just want to have an ordinary experience, you know. And uh, no, man, it, it gets you. And um, so so I guess it's it's maybe the artist himself or herself was able to channel something that's, like the tiger, you know, it, it was able to devour them and become something greater and bigger that we all recognize. You know, it's a universal language and we see it and we know it. It's like, you know, it's the perfect mountain because it's in you, you know. And if you can even glimpse at that in your life as an artist, I think you're, you're it's not only a, could you say you've had a good life, I think you've also been useful, you know, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That's very powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. Oh man, no, no, no problem. <laughs> Sorry, we <laughs> went so deep. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're here for it. Um, right. I just want to say it's a real um, joy to be asked such good questions, and it's it's rare that you get asked these good questions. And uh, I want to thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just also very honored to connect with you in that sense. And part of what I'm doing is that I approach mm. my conversations like I'm a sponge and there's nothing mm. I know. There's nothing I know. So I'm just looking to hold that I'm wow. what I'm being given. Yeah, so, that's, that's great. So this is very refreshing. Um, mm. I mean, I've taken so much from, from what you've shared with me. So I'm just glad that we could connect in this way. Yeah, thank you, man. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to also piece together what we've been mm. talking about. Um, I think a huge component of the artistic expression is also mm. looking for success. 
Yeah. Um, in your definition, like, what mm. does that look like, and how, how is it achieved? I think um, success for me, the ultimate success, is that uh, that I can practice as an artist without having to earn money in any other way, and that my the the career if you like, of being an artist it sustains me and 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 puts a roof over my head and my family's head and, you know, yeah. and I can feed, feed my children and, you know, give them the opportunities they need and so on. So, so and if I can do that just by being an artist, I, to me, that's a success. And I'm really blessed to be able to um, have that life. You know, that feels hard one, you know, it's it's been a journey and it's something I'm really uh, obviously, it's a constant. You know, you're constantly working on it, yeah. and um, and you know, there are times when you sell lots, and there are times when you don't. And uh, I've definitely got better at at kind of preempting those those times. It's like farming. You know, when you when the sun's out, you know that you've got to plant loads of seeds because you know the, there's times when when you're not selling as much, or there's times where you're working towards a show and. Reese's sources are thinner, and and so I definitely had. Uh, there was a point where um, the thought of having to do something else uh, was too unbearable, and it kind of shocked me into into action. So uh, instead of sort of hoping that somehow success would arrive, you know, or, or that I would I would be discovered, you know, in some big gallery would kind of make me famous. Um, that's a really painful place to be in as an artist and I know a lot of artists exist in that place where where you you just hope that someone will discover you you know and 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 um the truth is that that uh, there's another way which is we're really lucky now with with social media and um we're so connected you know and 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 uh I know for some artists it's not natural to share their story and they find it difficult but but I do believe that that uh, if you share your story and if you if you're constantly making work available, whether it's I have a daily painting project where I, I I sometimes turn it off, but pretty constantly over the last four years, I've I've had a new painting available every day on Instagram for sale, really low price. It's like two hundred quid, and I, I see it as a as a way to provide um, a contact with my work, you know, which is at a much different price point. But it it engages on a on a level that more or less anyone can could probably buy the work, you know. And um, uh, I did it for six hundred and seventy days in a row, and then I stopped for a while, and then I've started again. I'm on a sort of two hundred day run, you know. And there's ways to sort of create micro economies around yourself so that you yeah. you're sustaining. Um, there's some times where the, those daily paintings, even though it's a small amount, you know, they add up, and that, that maybe pays. For pays for my monthly costs you know uh and it allows me time to to work on big projects which are are maybe or may may not sell you know sometimes you do things that are just crazy you need to be able to engage in that realm of your practice where you're doing things that are like obnoxiously unsellable you know <laughs> like i did a painting in my last show which was the biggest i've ever done massive thing and i did it knowing that no one would have a wall that size, you know. And I put a price on it that was more than I'd ever thought of charging for a painting, knowing that no one would buy it, you know. And and weirdly, uh, that was the first one that sold, you know. So, so, <laughs> How do you explain that? So, 
Well, I, I, I think it's to do with this. I, I've got a really great story, actually. Uh, this is another kind of uh, sort of mythological story, but apparently the, the Iroquois in America, North America, were this incredible tribe of, of um, warriors, but, but also had a sort of spiritual connection with nature. Um, and uh, their most sacred object was the, the totem pole, you know, in the middle of the village. And they would... It would be carved, and there would it would be the sort of well their cathedral, if you like. Um, and uh, it, it, once in a, a cycle, whether it was a year or I can't remember what the cycle was, but they would go into the forest to chop a tree down for, for a new totem pole, and it was a big moment. And, and uh, uh, there would be a lot of ceremony around it, and they'd be in full regalia, and they'd go into the forest, and they'd <clears throat> they'd find the most magnificent tree. And they dance around it for days and days and days, getting ready to chop this thing down. And and uh, come the come the moment to uh, when they arrived at the moment of chopping the thing down, they would chop the tree next to it down. And uh, and there's so much wisdom in it because you you sort of have to do you have to do all these things to kind of keep the the sort of business alive. You know, like framing and making small paintings and yeah. and and and. But what you're working on is this other thing, you know, and and actually the other thing, the thing that you think is ridiculous or or no one will want. It's so personal, or or it's too, or it's too out there, or it's you you know sort of bonkers. It's quite often that's the thing that people recognise. Like, no, hang on, that I like that, and you like, what do you mean that? That's I didn't do that for the audience. I did yeah. that for me. You know, but I do believe you have to have a kind of contact with the world and whether that's, you know, whatever it takes to create the possibility for you to have that moment where you go into the unknown with just your own sort of impulses, like, I'm just doing it for me. So, yeah, I've, I've done that by taking the odd commission and doing these daily paintings, which I see as they're sketches. They're playful. Sometimes I do them because I really just want to understand I'm just copying something with like a landscape or a, sometimes I'm trying out color relationships, but, but they're small and sort of bite size. And, uh, um, and then, you know, making sure there's enough on, you know, like you've got, while the one field is empty, there's another field full of wheat. You know? Yeah. So if it's possible and it is possible now to have multiple outlets for your work, you know, whether that is different countries or it's different expressions of it, I sometimes do collabs with with brands, you know, very carefully selected. But I did one with a whiskey brand recently that allowed me to more or less do what I do anyway. But but they paid me well. So, but yeah, it's it's there's no I don't have a kind of out hard and fast answer. I just think it's like if you turn up for work every day, and being an artist should be no different to an ordinary job. You know, if you turn up for work and you you get a few hours in. Generally, and you, and you don't hide it under a rock, you know, you share it. Generally, it's possible to live from your work, yeah. Yeah. Just to close off on that painting mm. story. Um, yeah. What, what lesson did you take away from that experience? From which one, which story? The huge painting you made with the huge price oh, yes, that you didn't yeah. think would sell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was such a oh man, it was it was just a beautiful affirmation. Uh like do do to to really lean in to those instincts, like the thing that you were that you really felt 
I did it as a um, as a kind of grand expression of my own vision, but also in a really direct way as a kind of prayer to to God. You know, it, it was a like this is my offering. You know, this is a, this is as big as I can I, I can do. You know, this is as much as I as I want to do. And it doesn't mean it's it's about scale, but it was very much like. Uh, beyond the realm of your own idea of your own self, your own idea of as yourself as an artist, also your, but really your idea of like what the world will think of you. Yeah. You know, it was a kind of almost turning in the opposite direction and going inwards and this and, and making it in that space. Um, uh, but it was it's just such a great affirmation, you know. It's like it gives you strength, you know. Yeah. Uh, if if it hadn't sold, I guess I would have still had that experience because the work fed me. You know, I felt I loved it. I loved making it. I loved the way it looked. You know, but uh, it was just a, a beautiful affirmation to have it. That my um, expectations like confounded in that way. Yeah. yeah, it's like you built your own mountain and created your own cliff on top of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Oh, I tell you what, this is a great kind of lesson funnily enough uh i i made the work on residency at uh, nyrox in in the cradle of humankind just outside um johannesburg amazing space big studio and i launched into this big big painting and uh, i was using a process of dyeing with indigo and then and then using bleach to kind of edit backwards sort of carve carve into the surface which is scary because if you put too much it's it's ruined you know so there's like this point uh, little, very much like the cliff, like you have to be a kind of adventurous with the mark making. But yeah. if you if you put too much bleach on, you destroy it. And uh, I I made this this big painting, and it was looking great, looking amazing. I mean, I was blowing my mind how like that experience of coming into the studio I described earlier. You know, I was for for a, for about two weeks, I would go in and still have that awe awe inspiring feeling, like wow. And then. I started fiddling with it and I was fiddling and maybe a bit more and fiddling a bit more. And, uh, and then the fiddling created problems that I, that weren't there before. And then I tried to fix the fiddling with more marks and I ruined it. Like I destroyed this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I had about a week left of the residency until the show until I had to leave and come, I came back later for the show, but I had only a week left to, to, and I knew the work was wrong. You know, I knew I'd ruined it. And there was this instinct within me. It's like, no, no, you've got to redo it. And the cost was huge. I had to go and like get meters of fabric. I had to get them sewn. Um, I didn't feel like I had the time. And late one night, I had five days left. I dived in. I just did a new one. And it took two days and it was just, five times better than the first one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it came out of this sort of chaos. It was like, it was even better than the first one. You know, it had it had a whole new dimension to it. So, um, yeah, it felt like a gift. And, and uh, I guess it was exciting that it was sold as well. Yeah. Mm. To add to that, do you think the first one had to be made for you to? Yeah, yeah, one? yeah, 100%. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, t t totally. I, I'm more and more aware of that. Like you're, you're sometimes when a things when a thing's not working, the answer is through it. 
You know, you have to work through it. You can't stop and pause and wonder why and, oh, my, I can't paint anymore. And, you know, you deal with that a lot as a painter. You, I'm sure you relate. As a sort of creative person, you engage and <laughs> you, you sort of build your your ego, you know, your feeling of like success on the works you've made that you think are good. And so you start with that hope, like you're going to do another good one. And one in every five is a good one. And the others are like, so it's all right, you know, or, or it's terrible or it's okay, you know, or people say it's brilliant, but you know, in, in inwardly, it's like, mm, it's not a nine, it's not a 10 out of 10, you know, it's a sort of seven, you know. So, but you've got to do them. You've got to work You've got to make a lot of work, you know, and, and I guess maybe your hit rate starts to get better as you as you push through, you know. It does. <laughs> it does. Uh, definitely, particularly when you know that you've got to go through, you know, the only way is through. Somehow that energy creates the conditions for better paintings or better sculptures or or just generally better experience to manifest. It yeah. does. Um, I mean, I would also share... Part of why I also do this mm. in my deep quest to create connection, mm. I approach this with a blank canvas. And yeah. the goal is that I want to leave this conversation with a finished work. Mm. Not finished in the sense of there's nothing to add or there's nothing yeah, to add, yeah, yeah. but yeah. finished in the sense that like a story has been built. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And I, I just thought like piecing this together, the more conversations I had. Mm. Mm. So it, it's amazing that I can mm. connect to people all over the world in this way. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Um, sure. I don't take it for granted. It's a very special place to, yeah. to be in. You're so right to approach it in that way. And it, it's a very obvious to me that you've came to the conversation with an open mind. And the result of that is that I find myself saying things that are interesting to me as yeah. well. You know, it's like you learn the new things about yeah. yourself in the context of yes. openness. Um, otherwise, you're just playing tennis. You're hitting a ball backwards and forwards, yeah. you know, and, and, and nothing new happens. So that's what I meant when I said thank you. You know, it's it's a genuine heartfelt thank you for that approach. Yeah. Um, it's, it's That is rare, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, Jonathan, we're almost wrapping up. Thank you once again for the opportunity. Um, do you have any last words you want to share with our listeners? Um, well, I tell you what, the the um, the project I'm working on at the moment is a, uh, um, a body of sculptures and uh, paintings, which I'm making in Scotland, but I'm going to exhibit them at uh, Gallery Momo in Johannesburg mm -hmm. in May. And um, it's a great honour to me that I'll be exhibiting alongside Jackson Longwani, who is a, uh, he passed away about 15 years ago, but he's a great South African sculptor and uh, mystic, one of my heroes for many years. And so I'm very much like at the feet of the master, but it's rare that you have these opportunities to put yourself in, in the same space as your heroes. And, and uh, I just invite anyone who's in Johannesburg or, or even just digitally to come and uh, share the scary journey yeah. with me. Because <laughs> um, come that moment, it's the 4th of May, uh, I'll be a f experiencing a kind of combination of talking about that yeah. cliff, you know, is it good? Has it worked? And uh, yeah, that's an invitation to to kind of work out whether it's been worth it after all. <laughs> it will be, it will be. 
Yeah. No doubt about it. Uh, it will be. You, you've even answered that in this conversation we had where mm. you're on a quest to find that perfect mountain. But in your quest, you've mm. also been able to identify intuitively that it's not external, it's internal. And it's something that you can recreate yeah. and remember to build, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. It's it's to do with the house you live in, the spiritual emotional house you know and your physical body we're constantly able to work on that you know and if you're experiencing terror or or anger or sorrow or or jealousy or you know these wavelengths that disturb that that feeling the the kind of it's a little bit like realizing that this idea of heaven and hell they're not a place you go to it's it's this it's a state of being you know, you can live in either uh, a state of heaven or hell right now, you know, and, and it's yeah. to do with the choices you make on, and, and your ability to to just be present and do the work. You know? So uh, for sure, that golden, sacred, holy, whatever you want to call it, mountain is is still there in my in my on the horizon. And it's pulling me like a magnet. Um, but there's also this knowledge that's growing that um it is about the journey and the experience of being in the presence of that perfection you know that perfect state if you like yeah yeah just to also close this off jonathan um mm. yeah this would be the last question so in your own words what's your definition for love oh <laughs> wow um complete unity uh, where there's no difference between you and the beloved where you're completely dissolved into that oneness um, and uh, there's no line between you and the beloved whatever that beloved is yeah. mm -hmm. thank you for sharing this has been great this has been great um, yeah I enjoyed myself so much. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, what a treat. And uh, and hopefully yes. we'll keep in touch yes, in one yes, way or yes. another. Thank you so much once again. Okay, brother. Thanks so much, okay. dude. Brilliant. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye -bye.